Hello and welcome to Radio SGN. I am one of your humble hosts, A.V. Eichenbaum, pronouns they, them. With me, as per usual, is Lindsay Anderson, she, her pronouns. Lindsay, hi. Hi. I'm not joined by a puppy today. I could go grab one. No, that's okay. (laughs) The audio editing process is such that I got to hear a lot of licking real close range for like a solid five hours last time. You do not have to grab chugs as much as we... (laughs) We stand chugs here at the podcast. I have gone into this a little bit before, but I have uh, synesthesia, so I can taste that when I'm off. (laughs) It's not great. Those wet, moist sounds taste kind of like mud. Well, is that the same thing as, because I think I've got something where certain noises, mouth noises especially, like make me physically cringe like i can't stand my dad eating that's dysphonia okay i think i have that i have a disorder that's been pronounced since i got concussed (laughs) when i got kicked in the head by a bunch of cops back in 2020 it got worse but colors have a mild taste on the back of my tongue so like i can't do clashing colors and then certain sounds and voices have uh taste and words have a taste on the back of my tongue it doesn't work for um like reading though what what color is, tastes the best i am really a big fan this is so dumb i'm a really big fan of like candy apple red but it doesn't taste like candy apple and i really like like an egg yolk yellow but it doesn't taste like egg yolk it's like i like the colors for what they are and then i like the things they represent but there's a separation between what they taste like and what mm-hmm. they what they represent so and it's it's so dumb i have so many other neurological disorders (laughs) and this one's the one that's like i can't walk into a room with clashing colors because i get physically ill (laughs) you know so it's like i i didn't realize that i did this but i organized my groceries by color oh interesting you know and i realized this when i moved in with you know, 15 other people (laughs) in college. And they were like, why do you do that? And I was like, do what? Putting away like my boxes of blue, like my blue boxes of pasta next to the blue cans of tuna. And then if the can of tuna had like pink on the bottom, then the pink would turn into red. And it was like a whole color assortment. And I didn't realize I did that my whole life. That's quirky. Thank you. (laughs) I was originally cast as Zoe Deschanel's character in New Girl. You know, I actually, I've been thinking about this. I wanted to know what your opinion on New Girl is because just like my gut reaction is I assume that you hate Zoe Deschanel's character in New Girl. I don't care. You give me Nick vibes, but like not God, in like... okay. Oh, I love Nick. But yeah, I, f- I feel like you just would viscerally hate New Girl. I don't. Really? Yeah, I, I think it's important for people to find their joy. <laughs> you know, having been in high school during the peak of uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl era, I was exposed to that a lot more than your average, you know, Gen Z person might mm-hmm. have been. However, I do think it's a hilarious trope. And I think that maybe Manic Pixie Dream Girls need a special psychological place where they can rehabilitate. <laughs> you know, pancakes for dinner every day is not a viable option but i i do love that sort of trope i just also think it's incredibly problematic because it infantilizes women yeah and it turns them into this like sexy baby born yesterday thing and like i listen to a lot of emo music and a lot of like midwestern emo guys look exactly like every boring male character in every indie rom-com ever oh like who's that one guy um that's in tusk justin long yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely yeah like every emo singer looks like justin long 
every Midwest emo singer looks like Justin Long. <laughs> But, like, I don't hate New Girl or anything. I don't hate Zoe Deschanel. I just want to take back really quick when I said you give me Nick vibes. Thinking about it more, I feel like you're more Schmidt. Definitely Schmidt, if that makes sense. Both of those characters are incredibly problematic, and I'm <laughs> so sorry. My ex, before I came out in high school and, and a little bit in college, we watched every episode of how i met your mother together or more oh, that show is fucked she was caught up and i had to watch all of it in like a summer and she turned to me once and was like hey you are such a ted and oh. that should have been a wake-up call and genuinely i should have just gone to therapy and yeah. we should have broken up right there but instead i destroyed my entire life uh, se separate from this relationship. Because you're a Ted. I'm a recovering Ted. Yeah, I've been told that my sitcom personality doppelganger is Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec. That's adorable, and I agree. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I have gotten a lot of mixed reviews. I've gotten Frenchie from The Boys. I've gotten Robin from Stranger Things. Not a lot of new girl references being thrown my way, if I'm being completely honest. I've gotten the entirety of the Adams Family. Really? Uh, yeah, just on a, you know, depending on, I guess, my mood. <laughs> Which I, I'm a fan. I think they're a really healthy family dynamic that I don't personally have, but it's <laughs> nice to see. Um, yeah, I think definitely any rom-com person that, that I've been compared to, it's been meant as a compliment, but it's also been a full-on insult. <laughs> I feel that. Jim Carrey and Yes Man. I've never seen that. Jim Carrey scares me a little bit, though. He's the Grinch, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's why he scares me. My unpopular opinion, I know it's way too early for this, but I hate the live-action Grinch. Huh. Yeah. Okay. I'm not really a Christmas person. Yeah, me either. We should talk about this when it comes to Christmas time. I'm definitely a Halloween person, and we've got a lot of that coming up after the break. Um, we've got Guy Branham on the show. It's really great that he made time for it. And we have a whole bunch of witchy stuff to talk about. As it is now the spooky season, I'm losing steam. <laughs> All that and more after the break. At Chateau Saint-Michel, their wines are a force for gatherings and conversations to serve the well-being of their consumers, their communities, and their land. Chateau Saint-Michel is a proud ally and supporter of all of their employees and customers within the LGBTQIA community, and they aim to create an inclusive environment where everyone is welcome. Plan your next trip to the Chateau by visiting www.ste.michel.com. Support for Radio SGN comes from Book It Repertory Theater, presenting In the Time of Butterflies, September 24th through October 16th. From the novel by Julia Alvarez based on true events, this story of resistance and hope centers on four sisters as they grow up and work to overthrow the Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. For tickets, visit bookit.org. That's B-O-O-K-I-T.org. So why the Cheese and Meat Festival? We started the Cheese and Meat Festival to bridge the gap between artisan producers, farmers, and local distributors. We wanted to highlight what it means to be a farmer, what it means to be a producer, and what does that mean for you to consume their goods.
One of the important things for us is valuing what the vendors bring back to the festival. Either you're purchasing a ticket for the festival or you're coming as a vendor. And what that means to us is we're all stakeholders in this one movement called the Buy Local Movement. At the Cheese and Meat Festival, we're not only about cheese and meat. We started with a concept of building this festival around charcuterie and around cheese, but we quickly realized what we needed to do was create an artisan food and beverage festival. Why? Because we believe in the idea of pairing and the idea of our artisan producers. We don't charge our vendors to take part in the festival. In fact, we pay them to be there. You want to connect back with that farmer. You want to learn about their story, about the names of their cows. When we look at our farmers, we see them enjoy the process. And it's that gift that they give back to you when you come to the Cheese and Meat Festival. Joining me today via Zoom, he's written for Slate.com, New York Times, Vulture. You may know him from his true TV show, talk show, The Game Show. He was just in Bros, which I saw you in the trailer for Bros right before this interview. I was just scrolling through Instagram, and you're right there. Folks, comedian, actor, author, Guy Branham. Guy, thank you so much for being here on Radio SGN today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. How are you? You're you're in town for a show. Yeah, I have a couple of shows. I have a show at the Crocodile Theater on the 8th, and then I have a show in Corvallis on the 9th. Let's talk about you. How are you? I'm good. Um, you know, I've been working a lot and going in a lot of different directions recently, but that's really fun. There's something really nice to have your time filled up with stuff that you love. Absolutely. We can relate here at the SGN. We're pretty small crew. So you wrote this book, My Life as a Goddess, a memoir through unpopular culture. And you also did Pop Rockets, which is where I first heard you on Max Fun. I'm a fan. Don't want to butter you up too much on air. I am a journalist, first and foremost. But uh, can you talk a little bit about your book? Because I wrote a book a couple of years ago, yeah. uh, which is part memoir, part sort of like cultural analysis, because, you know, I think that that's a great way to learn about somebody is to learn about their relationship to other pieces of culture and art. And so it's just a series of essays where I talk about aspects of my life and also the art that sort of informed it. So I talk about my relationship with my dad through an analysis of his favorite movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. I talk about learning to be gay while at the same time analyzing the way that we show nightclubs and nightlife in uh, film and TV. And, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of my book. I think it's, you know, for better or for worse, like being stuck with me at a party ranting about something. If you don't like digressions or obscure references, it may not be the book for you. But um, if you don't like, you know, obscure references, or digressions, you probably shouldn't be talking to me. <laughs> Do you have a, a pop culture moment that sticks out to you for gay identity coming into, I mean, God, it's 2022. Yeah. All of life is pop culture right? at this point. I think finding Bewitched reruns as a child with Paul Lind and Agnes Moorhead really sort of, you know, you don't understand that this stuff 
is queer as a child, but it definitely informs your understanding of a sensibility. I think that's one of the hard things for straight cis people to understand is that it's not just a question of who you're attracted to or what gender you identify as. It's also a culture and a perspective um, that informs the way you look at the world. And, you know, that stuff is so much more subtle and more interesting. Like I always say the best way to tell if a seven-year-old is gay is to show them an Alfre Woodard movie. And if they come away asking, who's she? Like, you know, a movie with just sort of like Alfre Woodard in the ensemble. Alfre Woodard is so rarely gets the opportunity to be more than 15% of a film. But if you watch any film and you're like, that older character actress, what's going on there? Does that inform your stand-up as well? Yes, I, yeah. I think my stand-up is built on looking at stuff that people look at all the time and seeing it differently. And I think that's the essence of what queerness is. Let's talk about bros real quick. How was that? Because LA, not traditionally known for its acceptance of the LGBTQ community as a media sort of outlet, and you don't have. It's been shown in the past that queer representation is very narrow and not always super inclusive. I just spoke with Dilo on our last episode, mm-hmm. and we were talking a little bit about this as well. But how does it feel to be part of a, a an all-queer cast? You know, queer people have always been around film and television production. We've always been involved, but we've really not been able to represent ourselves and not really represent ourselves in an honest way. And this movie being a studio movie with, you know, the support and infrastructure of uh, a movie of that scale was really an amazing opportunity. And the fact that uh, Billy and Nick Stoller, the director, were really committed to having an entirely LGBTQ plus cast was, you know, it was noteworthy. It was surprising. It's not the sort of thing you normally get. Like normally you get at best a queer person playing, you know, one of the two or three main gay roles if you're in something that has two or three main gay roles, which not a lot of things do. But it was really cool and it created a space where it created a space where we were family, where we all knew that the other people there understood us and understood our perspectives and it allowed people to feel supported. And I think that that makes for better comedy. When nobody is feeling like they're in a corner where nobody is feeling embattled, they're able to open up and find the jokes and find the humor in their own space. And there were so many jokes there that, you know, I was a co-producer on the movie. It was my job to pitch jokes on the fly. Billy is so funny. Nick is so funny. They were both coming up with jokes all the time. But there were so many jokes that we couldn't write that trans or non-binary people or lesbians or people from just different queer perspectives were able to pitch and riff in the moment that enriched this movie so much. It sounds like a really great and enriching creative experience. Yeah, it was it was really fun. I mean, it was also really hard. Like, you know, you're working 12 or 14 hour days. It was a movie that had a lot more budget than so many queer independent movies have had, but it was also not the biggest budget in the world and we were trying to get a lot done but it was really lovely that it was a labor of love for everyone you know that everyone was really committed to making this movie and representing our community with pride that's fantastic it's it's really so this newspaper's been around since 1974 yeah uh, our job is to try to create those spaces you know and it's 
the guy before me who ran this, he did this for 30 years. This was like his life, right? His name was George. Mm-hmm. George created this space and, and created this sort of pocket in Seattle for um, for inclusivity. And I think a movie of this magnitude means a lot to all generations of the, the gay experience because we don't have a lot of folks to look up to in terms of generational queerness. And to see something like this, that means a lot to me and it, it means a lot to the movement that we've been a part of since the 70s as a paper. So One of the coolest things about this movie is part of it is Billy's character, Bobby, works at a, a queer history museum that is being started. And one of the amazing things about the movie is that it creates space for queer history. You know, just watching members of the crew on those days that when we were shooting in the museum, I, as co-producer, had to help sort of like uh, write some of the the stuff for the museum exhibits and, and put that stuff together and seeing members of the crew just stop and learn something about Audre Lorde or Queen Christina or, you know, these other queer people. And then have you gotten to see the film? I have not yet, no. There's a moment um, at the end of the film that Nick Stoller, the director, who is straight, he was like, that is the first, it is the first shot that I saw in, you know, in his head. And it's this beautiful moment where all of the cast or most of the cast is dancing and having a great time. But you start out by watching these images of our queer ancestors who are, you know, up around the ceiling. And then you sweep down to the people who are still alive and, uh, you know, still alive. That's a silly way of putting it. But just, I love that this movie made space for queer people from our past and queer people you don't always talk about. There's a huge amount of real estate in the movie to be able to discuss this stuff. And the people who get name checked are a lot of the people who you already know. But like, I just love that a lot of people are going to be seeing somebody like Lou Sullivan for the first time. And I hope it really gives people the charge to go out and learn more about these folks who did so much to make our lives possible. Absolutely. I I don't think that the straight folks, like my straight friends don't understand how big this moment is in cinematic history for the queer community. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just really cool. (laughs) It's really cool, but there's also a danger that comes with coming out of the shadows or coming out of our marginalized spaces. For such a long time, we had to tell our stories in in very marginalized way without much support, but it also meant that there was the opportunity to tell our stories outside of the boundaries of traditional heteronormative storytelling. And, you know, there is compromise inherent in taking a story about queer people and making it something more mainstream. And I think there's something really beautiful about the the courage and the daring of some of the queer stories we have seen over the course of the past couple of years being brave and, you know, not scared. For such a long time, we've had to reassure straight cis people that we are not sad, that we are okay, um, or assure them that we are meaningful and important and not frivolous. And I think trying to tell our stories in a way to, to trust that the straight cis world has grown up enough to hear our stories from our perspective and not be judgmental or dismissive. Do you think it has? I mean, I live in Seattle where we per capita we have the most uh, LGBTQIA plus folks in the country. So I'm living in a bubble, you know? Uh, yes. I mean, 
America has grown up. I've been doing stand-up for like 17 years now. And the audiences that I encounter now are not the audiences I encountered 17 years ago. And it's wonderful. And also the queer audiences that I encounter are different. And, And that's really wonderful that we have, that our fears and anxiety about our own representation have evolved and we've just gotten more comfortable with, with there being more queer representation out there. Every queer representation doesn't have to be a referendum on you, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are some other ways that the scene has changed since you've been doing this for 17 years? Oh, there are just more people. Like there are more queer people and there are more queer spaces to perform. I remember when I first met Solomon Giorgio, who's a really, really great gay comic from Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked him how much he performed at gay shows in Seattle. And he was like, there weren't really gay shows there. I was really lucky. I started stand up in San Francisco, which had a queer comedy performance scene that like could only be rivaled by New York. It was like a really great place. And it led me to, you know, unrealistic expectations of what comedy would be like in the rest of the world. But it was really great for me. But now, I mean, you have people like, uh, Pat Regan and Hannah Einbinder and just like so many young queer voices that are bold and powerful and are showing you like nuances of the community that we didn't see 20 years ago when it was pretty much just, uh, you know, white cis gay guys who were getting stage time. We are, we're just about out of time, but where. Can everyone find you online? What- you can find me online at Guy Branham. Uh, you can find me on stage at uh, the Crocodile Theater or um, in uh, Corvallis at the Majestic Theater. And you can find me on screen at Bros, which is playing all over America. And is there anything you'd like to say to our audience before we abscond? Oh, is there anything I'd like to say? I would like to say thank you for the good times, Pacific Northwest. Um, You have taken care of me on many occasions and uh, stay slutty. Stay slutty. Thank you so much. Thanks, A.V. I really appreciate it. Speaking of witchy stuff, one of my interviews today was with an actual witch. Okay. Yeah. Like, she's an author, but then in her author bio, it's like author slash witch. Cool. She was talking all about her witchy stuff that she does, and I was like, that's really cool. Having the background that I have, that is pretty normal for the people I hang out with. (laughs) So that's awesome. I'm glad. Not the flex that I thought it was. (laughs) I'm not saying it's not a flex. I'm saying that... Like, that's a Tuesday for me, talking to a witch. I mean, it makes sense because you're a vampire, so... Sure. We haven't visited that conversation in a while, but it still rings true. Anyway, welcome back to the show. (laughs) Thank you again to Guy Branham for for making the time. Also, if you're wondering, hey, aren't you guys a bi-weekly show? Yes, but we're we're coming out early because we're going to take a short break and try to get our ducks in a row for more interviews and trying to come out on a weekly schedule in the near future. So what you're saying is, is in the future, we'll still be a bi-weekly show, just a bi-weekly show. Right, exactly. Two bisexuals weekly. Yeah. We've gotten a lot of love and a lot of support from our listeners, and we think it's time, especially since it's a weekly newspaper, to expand. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. Before we get to the rest of the show, you can support us financially, fiscally, by going to sgn.org and clicking that donate button. 
every little bit helps. We really do need it. It does come as a surprise to some since we have such fantastic advertisers, but you know, it can be a struggle putting out the paper and putting out this podcast every week. We rely on this to eat. Please, I have 10 mouths to feed. (laughs) (laughs) Chugs is hungry. He's always hungry. Lindsay, since it is the spooky season, I would love to talk about Lana Popovich Harper and her cozy Halloween vibes in her witchy rom-com series. Go. Okay. First of all, she's a delightful person, and I loved our interview. Just, like, truly one of the kindest people I've talked to. The series is The Witches of Thistle Grove, and it's kind of one of those fun rom-com-esque series where you don't have to read the books in order, per se. So, like, if you're not ready to commit to a full book series, they do function as standalone books. And each novel focuses on a different, like, set of characters, but the characters do reoccur. So a character that's a side character in one novel is the, the center of the next one, which is just super fun. I like it when authors do that. Um, her first book in this series is called Payback's a Witch, which is just hilarious. Her titles are all puns, which I love. And this one, she kind of described it as John Tucker must die, but like make it <laughs> gay. So it's kind of a bisexual romance slash revenge story. Um, after these four witches try to take revenge on their ex. Into it. Yeah. So I'm looking at the other two that she has right now. From Bad to Cursed and Back in a Spell. That's fun. Yeah. Would you recommend reading these to our listeners at home? I would recommend, especially like if you're looking for fall vibes and romance. Our fall book club series is back this year. Um, but unlike last year, I feel like we've got a lot more horror novels like ones that are actually pretty scary and this one is a little bit of a break from that it's kind of cute fun rom-com vibes like there are still some spooky elements to it because it's a witch book but yeah it's not gonna like terrify you quite as much as like dr edith vane that one was pretty scary i'm a big horror or not this is like i gotta be i gotta be really careful about how i pronounce that because of how i speak but you know (laughs) but i'm a big horror or not a big fan of just the horror genre the bad bitch genre. Yeah. And in that vein, we've got some great reviews from Sarah Michelle Fetters this week. As always, if you're not familiar with Sarah Michelle Fetters' work, you're not reading the paper, and you should be. We should be talking about it more. But she did a Hocus Pocus 2 review. And now, Lindsay, you and I both grew up in the Hocus Pocus era of TV. I've seen that movie more times than I can count, at least as a kid, and I watched it back last year. What do you think of the original Hocus Pocus before we get into it? So I have to admit, I did not watch the original Hocus Pocus until I was in high school for the first time. Oh, okay. Like I wasn't alive, obviously, when it came out in theaters or anything. And then it was just always on ABC Family. They rebranded Freeform. ABC Family, Disney, all of the Disney channels during this time. They do that 31 days of Halloween thing. Yeah. So like more my speed when I was a kid was I loved the Halloween Town movies. Did you watch those? I love Halloween Town. My whole my whole aesthetic is basically the werewolf from Halloween Town, the barber. Oh my gosh, I can see it. You look like the barber. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Halloween Town movie? Because there's like the three, and then like the God. fourth that we don't talk about because because they changed Marnie. I was they so changed miffed. Marnie. Just her, though, which is crazy. But yeah, oh. um, I I really like Halloween Town High, actually. That's my favorite. The third one, right? With like the transfer students. That one scared me when I was a kid, too. Like the nights were scary. And I guess since I was in like middle school when it came out, 
I was hoping that high school would be like that. <laughs> I was into, uh, did you watch Wizards of Waverly Place or were you too old for that? I will have younger siblings, so I watched a lot. Before we leave the Halloween Town well, no, conversation. Well, hold on, because oh. this is important. This is a queer canon thing. Oh, okay. Um, so Calabar's Revenge. Yeah. The second film in the franchise <laughs> was like my dream, right? So it basically, it's like the problem is that he's going to turn everybody into their Halloween costumes. <laughs> yeah. And so I would always try to dress up in a Halloween costume I would be comfortable with turning into. I still do this to this day because uh, I don't love my body, you know, as a non-binary individual who I'm very masculine looking, but I'd prefer not to be, you know what I mean? Uh, so every Halloween I dress up as something that I would be comfortable changing into forever for the rest of my life. I love that. Which I think is part of the trans non-binary canon. I have a question to build off of that, but before we leave Halloween Town, did you know that the guy that played Calabar, mm -hmm. the kid, you know, in Calabar's Revenge, and the girl that played Marnie are married now? No. They're married. Yes. And I saw this on TikTok because I found her TikTok, and she like played some clip from it where she was like, I never want to look at you again. And then she was like, this didn't age well. And he's like in the background. I was like, the tea. Oh, but what I was going to ask you about Halloween costumes is what's the worst Halloween costume you ever had as a kid? When I was really little, maybe even less than a year old, my parents dressed me up as a zebra. Oh, that's not bad. But they didn't know what a zebra's face looked like. So I had like cat whiskers <laughs> and like a little nose that they painted on. I got really into Halloween, which I don't think surprises anyone that's met me. <laughs> As a kid, I was a werewolf one year and I like got the spirit gum and like the fake hair and like did my whole face and body. I was a vampire often because it's easy for me to be a vampire. Yeah, that's not even dressing up, that doesn't count. I was Charmander one year. When my brothers got older, we did a bunch of like group costumes. Oh, you guys were that family? Yeah, not for very long, but definitely when they were like of that age where it's like you kind of have to all go out at the same time. Mm -hmm. We were ninjas one year, which is problematic, but I was. it was like a superpower ninja team that we got from like Target. <laughs> I was a spider ninja. Like, they had, like, a spider mask and everything. <laughs> like, just made up, weird, off-brand. Wait, is a spider ninja just Spider-Man? No. He wears a ninja costume, right? Like, a spider ninja costume? When you think about it. I always like to think of Spider-Man as the next logical step from a luchador. I mean, both are you know? not culturally correct for him, but... Well, Miles Morales is, is black and Latinx. Oh, well, I'm thinking, like, Peter Parker. Yeah, Peter Parker's Jewish, so... Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we, yeah, we did like group costumes for a while, but they were always like off-brand Target costumes I, right before we kind of lost our house. <laughs> yeah. How about you? Um, my costumes after the age of like four were always kind of homemade stuff from Goodwill. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, a lot of reused costumes, so I was, like, the same thing, like, multiple years in a row. Mm. But the worst Halloween costume I ever had was when I was in middle school, in, like, seventh grade. And I was a Canadian fur trader. Okay. Yeah, I wore, like, a giant flannel and, like, a raccoon cap on my head. 
and just like sweats and then I just had like pelts of fur like taped to me and then the middle school like yearbook committee was like oh my god we need to take a picture of your costume and I was like I'm so cool but like looking back I think they were just like who's this weird little boy and that's just kind of how I looked (laughs) thank you for sharing your coming out story with me thank you you're welcome (laughs) I feel validated yeah I look at those pictures and I'm like mom how'd you not know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know that my family has a picture of me in this fur trader costume, but the only picture they can find is one of, like, me with all the neighborhood kids and, like, my sister and stuff. And all the girls my age are, like, in little witch costumes, like a candy corn witch. And, like, what it, it was, like, the year that Alice in Wonderland came out. So they were, you know, a lot of Mad Hatters and stuff. And then I'm over here dressed like a fur trader. So we've gotten a little off topic. Oh, yeah. Sorry about uh, that. Hocus Pocus 2 came out. Uh, Sarah Michelle Fetters hated it. How can you hate Hocus Pocus? Well, let's get into it, because I watched that last year with my partner, like I said. It's mm-hmm. not very good. No, it's amazing. I think it's... It's iconic, but it's not a good movie. I love it. They have, like, a real cat in it, and they somehow made him talk. Some movie magic. So... Hocus Pocus 2 came out on Disney Plus and Sarah Michelle hated it. Her headline is Hocus Pocus 2 fails to cast a memorable spell and this screenshot here, this this still from the movie is the three witches going into like a Rite Aid or CVS, which I guess is how they show it's 2022 now. Well, they didn't have that back in what when are the witches from like 1666? Yeah, but also they were there in the 90s. Well, is this is this like a remake? Or no, no, is this it... is a direct sequel. Oh, okay. Maybe they didn't experience Rite Aid when they came back in the 90s. They were only here for a day. Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najimy. Najimy? The, the whole crew is back. The witches are back. The Sanderson sisters have returned. Mm-hmm. I think it's iconic. It is iconic, but it's not that good. The cat gave an Oscar-worthy performance. Okay. All right. Also, who is the little girl from the original one? I thought she was a good little actor, too. She was, like, in Beethoven or something as well. What? You know, you know Beethoven? Like the composer? No, like the movie about the dog. Uh, it was, like, a, a St. Bernard. Maybe ads for this. It's, like, a f- whole franchise. Okay. Beethoven and Beethoven's second and Beethoven's third. Is it, like, Airbud where a dog plays music? No, he doesn't talk or play music. He's just, like, a big dog. And he's, like, a naughty dog. And the dad doesn't like the dog. Like, did you watch, like, Homeward Bound? It's, like, the same energy. Like, a dog movie. I did watch Homeward Bound. My uh, sixth grade English teacher had a hangover. So, you know what? Sorry. we're Again, we're getting off topic. But Horse Sense. Have you seen no, Horse I don't know that. Okay, Horse uh-huh. Sense is a Disney film. I, if I'm remembering the plot correctly, it's this. Basically, there's this guy who lives in the big city. And his dad dies. And he has a half-brother. And his half-brother and his dad lived on this ranch. And they had horses. And this guy from the big city is really egotistical. They always are. Those city boys. Them city folk. So he goes back to this ranch. And there is a scene where the ranch hands are all sitting around. And they're like, well, you're going to help out on the ranch, right? And the uh, city slicker goes, what, in these boots? Those are Italian. And then there's a beat in the head ranch hand. 
goes, what, do they move with an accent? And then there's a lot of whittling and brotherly bonding. Does does he, like, tame a wild horse? No, I don't think so. I think it's mostly oh. about the bond between the siblings. Well, then the title is misleading. I would think it would be about horses. Since we've already alienated, like, half of our listenership, were you a horse girl growing up? <sighs> Maybe. The wistfulness with which you just responded. <laughs> if you weren't a horse girl, you were horse girl adjacent. I might have been horse girl adjacent. You know, like everybody's got that ratty, tattered, stuffed animal. Yeah. Mine is a horse that is older than my little sister. His name is Trotter. He looks very pitiful. Um, and I did. I went through a horse phase, so that was probably where that horse came from. But then I definitely like outgrew it by, you know, like. By the time, like, the horse girls were, like, trotting through the hallways, I didn't do that, you know? Um, But then when I was, like, in middle school, like, seventh grade for Christmas, my dad, after, like, my parents had gotten divorced and so he was, like, buying us clothes for Christmas on his own, he had my sister help him pick out a shirt for me and it's this, like, flowy, billowy blue shirt with horses on the front that said, like, ride wild and free. And I was, like, appalled. I was, like, I cannot wear this to middle school. Like, I will be branded as a horse girl. Like, the girls that, like, neigh in the hallways. Mm -hmm. And so I never even took the tags off of it. And I blame my sister. I think she got that shirt on purpose because she knew. That sounds like a great shirt. I never even took the tags off. I couldn't. Growing up in an agricultural town where a lot of people, even though it was kind of the suburbs, a lot of people considered themselves country folk, you know? Our (laughs) motto for our high school class of 2013 was... 2013, young, wild, and free, which I think is a mistake. So moving back to the paper for a second, again, in the same vein of witches, this South Park puppy sprayer, there's a horrible person going around or who has gone around pepper spraying dogs? Yeah, this woman, her name is Lauren Bonvini. And she, yeah, like a serial dog sprayer, basically. Um, So this one couple caught it on camera that she was like walking past their house with her German shepherds and sprayed their like tiny dogs, like Peter-sized dogs who were behind their fence on their property. And so they like caught up with her and they had their cameras and they were like, hey, you sprayed our dogs. What the heck? And she's like, it's just water. I'm allowed to do that because I'm on the sidewalk. And so they posted the video and it went viral and everybody's like, this woman is like the worst of the Karens. She's insane. And more stuff has come out about her um, that she was a part of this this um, community of like dog trainer enthusiasts or something that like really advocate for punitive dog training which is super inefficient if you're you know trying to train a dog and also like borderline animal cruelty and she before deleting her social media accounts like made posts about how people should buy this product called pepper jelly to like pepper spray dogs behind fences because it doesn't fly back and spray you and your dogs So the evidence is there that she is using these products and spraying dogs behind fences, even though she denies it. Well, and she was cut on video, which is how you found out about this. Yes. She claims in the video, though, that she sprayed them with water. But based on her, you know, posts and also being a brand ambassador for a company that makes like mace type products, people are like, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's very doubtful that she just sprayed water on these dogs. Well, that is genuinely horrifying. That is, speaking of horror, I guess it is the spooky season after all. That's disgusting. Yeah. Let's talk about (laughs) anything else. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think we've given her enough air time. Yeah. Well, if you know her, report her definitely for animal abuse. Animal cruelty. Yeah. Jesus. This woman um, should not be allowed to have pets. We got some international news that's pretty interesting this week. Cuba did something that surprised a lot of people uh, and redefined their family code to include everybody, all people. Anyone of any gender and any sexuality is allowed to have a family in Cuba, which I think is great. You know, uh, U.S.-Cuban relations have not been stellar over the years, uh, mostly due to, you know, domino theory and uh, hard anti-communist rhetoric. What's, what's domino theory? Domino theory is the political theory wherein if one country falls to communism, then it's just going to keep happening. Oh. So that's why we fought so many wars against communists, and that's why the like, whole Cold War happened. Oh, it's basically a slippery slope fallacy. No, I mean, the scare was, oh, people are really going to like communism, so we have to stop it immediately with force. And somehow, people didn't think that that was a red flag for capitalism, where it's like, wow, if this one country falls to communism and other people realize, wow, that's kind of a good thing, then the rest of them are going to fall. We don't have to get into that (laughs) right now, but Cuba did that. And meanwhile, while they're fighting for equality, Italy elected the most right-wing government since Mussolini. Which is terrifying, especially when we see the path that, like, U.S. right-wing politics is taking. The great thing about U.S. right-wing politics is most of those people who are higher up in those sort of circles are incompetent, right? We saw that with Trump. I don't know if I'd say it's a great thing. Well, he didn't know what he was doing, and so he didn't get as much done as he was planning to. But he did instill a lot of conservative people on the Supreme Court that will be there for decades to come, which led to, like, Roe v. Wade being overturned. But what I'm concerned about is people in Italy who had a fascist government looking to the past for advice, looking for that support you know, Europe was very good at fascism. Mm-hmm. We fought a whole war over it. <laughs> and think that these smaller countries that are more unified will be easier to control for fascist dictators or fascist presidents. And that's my main concern. And I don't know if the U.S. will be able to stand against that sort of incursion anymore because we have a lot of Nazi sympathizers within our own country. Hopefully we have at least better UN precautions, you know, to prevent something like a European fascist overtaking. They did recently in the UN condemn um, Russia, who is still invading Ukraine. Right, but what does a condemnation from the UN actually do? It's like a stern talking to. Makes you feel bad and makes you think. Hmm. Well, we're saved, everybody. (laughs) We're good. Don't have to worry about that. <laughs> In other news, the Pacific Northwest Ballet is celebrating its 50th season. Yay! Have you ever been to the ballet? I haven't been to the Seattle Ballet or the Pacific Northwest Ballet. I've been to the ballet previously. I've been to amateur ballet performances, Ooh. but never really been my thing. I, I There is something about the mindset of a ballerina because I have been around a lot of performers and a lot of dancers that freaks me out (laughs) Uh, the dedication is laudable Uh, it's an art you know they're very fit they're very strong-willed individuals to continue to do this 
Um, but yeah, I just, it's not something that I can appreciate as an art form in the same way that I appreciate theater or the same way I appreciate opera. Like I love mm -hmm. opera, but I can't go to a ballet and be excited about it. I think because I, I don't have the same technical understanding of, of a lot of that, you know? Yeah. Um, meanwhile, this weekend I'm going to see Guar and, Necro and Necrogoblicon at the showbox. Uh, is that so, an opera? No. Necrogoblicon is a band that has a goblin running around on stage screaming. And it's dope as hell. And then Guar... You know what? Actually, Lindsay, do yourself a favor. Google Guar and feel bad about it for a little bit. Because they're not like art, necessarily. But they are <laughs> art. Okay. Like I would, I, I'm going to see a Guar show, but I'm talking shit about ballet. I think ballet is a great art form. I just can't appreciate it the same way I can appreciate uh, screaming into a microphone and a goblin running around slam dunking shit and high-fiving people. Okay. Different strokes, I guess. Oh, we've had another escapee. I'm going to pick him up because this is his second escape. Sorry, this is Sprig. He keeps breaking out. So Sprig is here just in time to help us wrap up because we're trying to stick to a, a shorter schedule. Hello, Sprig. Um, Sprig, do you have anything you'd like to say before we sign off? He just says, I love everybody listening. <laughs> um, upsetting. So, yeah, Lindsay, <laughs> do you have anything you'd like to say before we sign off? Just check out SGN Book Club if you're looking for a spooky read this fall. Yeah, uh, and what's the handle for that on Instagram? It is SGN underscore books. Wonderful. At SGN underscore books on Instagram. You can check us out at radio.sgn on Instagram as well. That's where we're most active. Check out SGN.org, Seattle Gay News on all platforms. You can check my stuff out at Photon Detective on all platforms. Lindsay, are you comfortable giving out your social media? Sure, you can follow me at lindsay.anderson without no in the last Anderson. So A-N-D-E-R-S-N. But uh, I am private, so you will have to request to follow me. I'll let you follow me if you're cool. Yeah, if you're hip. Thank you guys so much for listening. It means a whole lot uh, to us. Please, 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 if you can, donate whenever possible if you want to buy an ad i also handle advertising sometimes you can either email me at editor at sgn.org if you have a story or an advertisement you want to do or you can email maggie who was on the, the show a couple weeks ago at uh, advertising at sgn.org every little bit helps our ads are dirt cheap and um, it helps keep us going for hopefully another 50 years Think of it this way. You buy an ad, you get to force Ash to say whatever you want them to say. And I'll say it. Yeah. We have literal porn site ads on this show, and you can go back and listen to them. I have no scruples about what I will read on air, as long as it is not hate speech. Or ballerina appreciation, apparently. Look, man, <laughs> it's a great art, but I'm just not into it. It's just not my thing. I, their feet must hurt all the time. Oh, their feet are jacked. My sister is a ballerina. Wow. Her toes are deformed, man. Deformed toes. Talking pinky halfway down the foot. Look, man, I'm not going to kink shame. Anyway, that's our show. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the funny pages.
Radio SGN is hosted by A.V. Eichenbaum and Lindsay Anderson and produced by A.V. Eichenbaum. Music for this show was provided by TRG Banks and Jesse Spillane or was provided for free by Anchor. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on SGN.org or wherever you find podcasts.